Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. This is Laura Harris-Hales, and I'm here today with Julie Smith to talk about the Gospel of Mark in the New Testament. Julie Ann Smith graduated from the University of Texas at Austin with a BA in English and from the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, California, with an MA in Biblical Studies. She's on the executive board of the Mormon Theological Seminary and the steering committee for the BYU New Testament Commentary, for which she is writing a commentary on the Gospel of Mark. She is the author of Search, Ponder, and Pray, A Guide to the Gospels, and the editor of and contributor to As Iron Sharpens Iron, Listening to the Various Voices of Scripture, and Apocalypse, Reading Revelation 21-22. through Julie is married to Derek Smith. They live near Austin, Texas, where she homeschools their children. She also blogs for Times and Seasons, where she is the book review editor. In the LDS tradition, there's a tendency to teach gospel concepts rather than to undertake a systematic teaching of the New Testament gospels. We thought it might be interesting to talk to specialists in the gospels to whet our listeners' appetites for further study into the individual books of the New Testament, and where better to start than the Gospel of Mark, the first gospel we have. Julie, let's start by talking about the BYU rendition. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So this is part of the BYU New Testament commentary series, which is a series that will eventually produce one volume for each volume of the New Testament. I believe a few of the smaller epistles will be combined together. At any rate, a few of these have already been released. So Revelation is already available. Luke is already available. First Corinthians is just available, I believe, this week. One of the features of this series is that a new rendition, so a fresh translation of the Greek text is included with each volume. So the volume of Mark will include a new translation of the text that we are calling the rendition. Each author is approaching his or her own translation differently with different translation principles. So the way Mark is translated, which is the one I'm responsible for, is actually quite different than, for example, what they did with the book of Revelation. What I was trying to do with the Mark translation was to stay as close as possible to the Greek text. So it's not pretty. In some cases, it's actually grammatically incorrect. It's often very awkward. It's also very earthy. It is definitely not the sort of glorified sounding language that we're used to in the King James Version but I tried to stay as close as possible to the Greek text to deliver to the audience a flavor of what Mark would have sounded like to the earliest audiences. The only time I depart from that principle is when I translate idioms, which I try to translate as idioms so that they don't sound wooden and foreign, but that you recognize that it's an idiom. When we talk about Mark, we talk about it being written in Koine Greek. Did I pronounce that right? Yes, exactly. So this is the common Greek of the first century world. Your rendition would be true to that coiny Greek, which would not have been as pretty as the more educated Greek. That's true. And then also the way I'm translating it does not attempt to prettify it. I don't know that the King James was an attempt to prettify, but at 400 years old, it sounds very fancy and elegant to us. But that is absolutely not Mark's Greek. 
So if I can just give you one example, at one point when Jesus is exercising a demon, I believe the, the King James Version says, hold thy peace, which means roughly be quiet. But the Greek expression Mark uses there is very slangy and rude. So I think the best English translation is shut up. So I have Jesus telling the demon to shut up which is going to strike a lot of people oddly. I, for one, do not allow my children to use that language in my house, right? But that's what the text says. And so I tried to capture that and preserve that in the rendition. How fun. There is a tendency to want to harmonize the Gospels, which can be somewhat chalkboard screeching to modern academics. Are the Gospels more like pieces of one pie separate viewpoints of the same story, or would you compare them to something else altogether? I like your screeching chalkboard analogy. The analogy I often use is to portraits. So if we imagine Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as gospels, regardless of who actually wrote them, as painters, and we are now looking at four portraits of Jesus, I think we would be extremely reluctant to cut those up and make our own portrait, right? Take Matthew's nose and Mark's ears and John's hair or whatever and create one portrait. If we were to do that, we would recognize that we were not representing the gospel, but that we were creating our own painting, not a painting any of the four had created. And we would recognize that there are dangers to that. So by analogy, I think it is really, really important to at least sometimes study and read the gospels separately as separate works of art. You have written that as a believing LDS scholar, it is Mark whose shine most attracts my gaze, partially because its light is often ignored. I attended a lecture by Matt Gray last year, and he said every year he takes a poll of his students after he teaches the Gospels to see which is their favorite. And Mark rarely reaches the top that's of so the depressing. Pile. Oh, that's so depressing. I'm so sad to hear that. <laughs> but maybe that's because we do not see that hidden light. Tell us about the Jesus of Mark's gospel, whom we might accidentally overlook by our unwitting distraction by the more flashy gospels. We are fighting a strong historical current here because for most of history, Mark was regarded as an abbreviation of Matthew, and that's largely why it wasn't studied for the same reason that scholars tend not to study the Reader's Digest version of a book, right? They study the original unabridged version. However, in recent centuries with closer study of the text, it's been determined that Mark was actually written first and that Matthew and Luke wrote with Mark in hand as if they were editors, John may or may not have had access to a copy of Mark. So Mark is the rough draft, if you will, but I offer that formulation with a strong hesitation that I don't think it's rough in the sense of unfinished, but it is rough in the sense of being less polished. And an analogy I'd like to use is to me, Mark is the stake president in California who lets a homeless family sleep in the cultural hall because he's not much of a rule follower kind of a guy. Whereas Matthew and Luke work for CES in Salt Lake and wear a suit and would never dream of breaking a rule. 
So that might be a little bit of a generalization, but in Mark, Jesus is very, very earthy. It's a very human portrait of Jesus. It's also a very divine portrait, but the human elements, I think in some ways really stand out, particularly in contrast with the other gospels in the New Testament. So even though a lot of the material in Mark and Matthew are similar, in some cases verbatim, Mark often handles the material in a very different way. So we get kind of a different impression of Jesus. Oddly, Jesus doesn't actually say much in Mark. He is very active, but we don't have the long sermons. There's no Sermon on the Mount in Mark. With the exception of Mark 13, and then to an extent the parables in Mark 4, Jesus is mostly active. He does things. He demonstrates his authority by, for example, performing miracles, but he's not a big talker. So it's maybe a different impression of Jesus than we would get from Matthew, which focuses more on discourses or John with a farewell discourse. It's a different picture of Jesus and one that I think is important to balance the other pictures we have and are usually more familiar with. The primary focus of your commentary is reception history or how first century Christians would have interpreted the gospel of Mark. Since Mark was originally intended as performance art, how should that affect how we read it? So a few things there. One, when you say it's a reception history, that's true, but limited to the reception by the first audience. In the book, I do not, for example, look at how Mark was understood in the Middle Ages or during the Reformation or by LDS audiences or received by any other audience. But instead, I'm looking just at that initial audience. And we have very strong reason to believe that Mark did not primarily exist in the first century as a written text. Now, think about, for example, a Shakespearean play. There are scripts of that, but Shakespeare's point was not to write a printed script, right? The script is just a tool for the performers. Shakespeare's point is to have a play presented to an audience. The ultimate goal is not the interaction with the written text. It's the interaction with the performance. Mark is very similar. We know literacy rates are maybe in the 2, 5, 7% in the first century, probably a little lower than that even for Christians because early Christianity drew disproportionately from the women and from the poor who would have had lower literacy rates, approaching zero perhaps. And so the early audiences of Mark are just simply not capable of interacting with a written text. So instead, Mark is shared orally. It takes about an hour and a half to listen to the entire gospel of Mark. I would strongly recommend that people find a version on YouTube and listen to it without the text in front of them. Do not follow along the written text, just watch the performance. And eventually, of course, we do get written texts of Mark, perhaps about 70 AD, although that date is uncertain. But the text, again, seems to exist the way a script of a Shakespearean play would exist. It was really never the point until later on, perhaps a century later. So audiences are interacting with a performance. And I think the performance makes a difference. To use one example from the end of Mark 3, we have people approaching Jesus and saying, your family's outside, they want you. And he says, who is my family? And then he says, behold, my mother, my brothers, my sisters. And if you imagine a performer in front of a room, it's easy to imagine how that performer might gesture to the people in that room as the performer says, my mother, points to someone else, my brother points to someone else, my sister. And then when Jesus says, my family is all those who do the word of God and obey it, you can imagine that not being perceived by the early audience as primarily a recording of a thing that happened a few decades ago, 
but rather experiencing it primarily as an intimate invitation to them to follow Jesus and be considered their family. So that's just one of many examples where when we think of Mark as an oral performance, it becomes much more intimate and much more inviting to the audience. It would not have been primarily perceived as history, but as invitation. And I think that changes how we read it. Another good example of that is when Jesus is anointed in Mark 14, Jesus says, wherever the gospel is preached, what this woman has done will be told in memory of her. And that story, I think, has a different kind of power if someone is telling you that story. It's as if Jesus's prophecy is coming true in the moment you hear it, and you then personally are involved in that fulfillment of prophecy. I think that makes a far more powerful moment for the audience hearing that than it does for us if we read this as simply a thing that happened a long time ago and is now done. And I don't think that's how they would have understood that story. Probably the biggest thing that it does to us as an audience to think of Mark orally though, is to realize how much they would have picked up on resonances and patterns that are just simply not obvious to us when we put a lot of mental weight on chapter divisions, which did not exist for centuries. And when we might, for example, read Mark 3 today and Mark 4 tomorrow and Mark 5 in a week when we remember to read again. But if you hear it all at once, you pick up on patterns and echoes a lot more. So for example, in the middle section of Mark, there are three of what are called passion predictions. And this is Jesus predicting his suffering and death. Jesus offers his teaching as a paradox. So that is a pattern with three parts repeated three times over the space of a couple chapters, which if I read it like a modern saint who reads one chapter one day, and then I read chapter nine the next day and chapter 10 the next day, I may not notice that pattern. But if you are listening to Mark, I think you're almost certain to observe that pattern because you hear it in the space of a couple minutes. And so the pattern takes on greater depth that it, for them as an oral audience than for us reading the text in sections. As you were giving those examples, some things came to mind. This comparison to Shakespeare. We know that Shakespeare performed on different levels and he used irony. One thing in the book of Mark that comes out is that the disciples often come across as clueless. They just can't understand that he's the Messiah. And if you realize a little bit about Jewish tradition, that's more understandable. But you can see as a performance how that would be interesting to the audience and how that could be played up. And part of that I've heard is the humanization of Mark, how even his apostles, they didn't accept him readily. And if his apostles were like that, then any common Christian was enough to accept Christianity. What you were saying about the disciples, so I think it is clear, and there is a general consensus, that the major theme of Mark is discipleship, particularly when compared with the other Gospels. It is very, very true that the disciples, particularly the Twelve, are presented in Mark as learners, and that's the kindest, most charitable way I can present it. Being less charitable, they mess up at almost every turn. They almost always do the wrong thing. And I think recognizing Mark as oral performance helps us realize there would actually have been a lot of laugh lines in Mark where people would have laughed at the fact that the disciples did not understand what was happening. 
I think that comic relief may have been important in a story that is incredibly heavy. I think it's also significant that when Mark first introduces the 12 by name in chapter three, it's Judas who betrayed Jesus. So Mark is not what you would call a suspenseful story, right? It's right there as soon as they're introduced, how the story is going to end. There's no suspense here. Mark is clearly doing something else than trying to build suspense. Obviously the opposite of building suspense, he gives the story away. I think Mark is trying to show us a mechanism. We know the story ends with Jesus's suffering and death. We know Judas is involved in that, but how exactly does that happen? Why does it happen? I think Mark is deliberately trying to position the audience so that they are not wondering what happens next, but instead focusing on the how and the why that it happens. So presenting the disciples as usually misunderstanding Jesus does a couple different things. One is, is it creates opportunities for Jesus to reteach, right? And so when the disciples don't understand something the first time, Jesus explains it again. He does that with the parables early in the gospel. He does it with the teachings on divorce later in the gospel. So it has an important pedagogical purpose to give the audience of Mark another chance to hear the information. Also, it's a big deal in Mark that Jesus has chosen these disciples. And so we do not see the lack of understanding of the disciples as sort of a surprise or a, oh dear, I don't know what's going to happen. No, Jesus deliberately chose people who would have a hard time understanding. And I think that that is designed to give Mark's audience courage and faith, that they need not be perfect in their discipleship. The big deal in Mark is not doubt or lack of understanding or greed or envy or any of those things. The big deal in Mark is the willingness to follow Jesus. Are you willing to follow? And so as long as the disciples are willing to follow, Jesus comes across as more than happy to continue to teach them, to continue to have them be disciples. And I think this would have been an incredibly reassuring message for Mark's audience who is facing all sorts of challenges in the first century, the natural challenges of living in an ancient world with plague and disease and earthquakes and extreme poverty like we can't even imagine, as well as the challenge sometimes of persecution for being a Christian, whether that's stemming from government or other religious groups or whether it's stemming from conflicts within their biological families or community. So this picture of the disciples as having a slow learning curve, I think is incredibly important not to mock or demean or make fun of the 12, but rather because of the message it gives to Mark's audience, which is to put it simply, as long as you are willing to continue trying to follow Jesus, it's okay if you mess up. Even if you really, really mess up the way Peter does with denying and betraying Jesus, And I think it's significant that in the tomb scene in Mark, the young man says, go tell Peter and his disciples. So on the one hand, Peter is separated from the disciples in that moment because the command is to tell Peter and the disciples. But on the other hand, the invitation is also explicitly to Peter. Even despite what Peter has done, he is still specifically invited to resume the path of discipleship. And of course, if Mark's audience knows anything about early Christianity, they know in fact that Peter took up that offer. I know a lot of Latter-day Saints will be somewhat uncomfortable with a view of the 12 in Mark as having a really slow learning curve and more often than not really, really messing up. But that is what Mark says. And it is done, I think, to really, really good effect for the audience of Mark in terms of their thinking about their own discipleship. One more scene that I want to bring up, which I think 
would have played really well in the performance and the audience would have seen it as very ironic is the scene where the Roman soldier is the first to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. So I actually think the anointing woman is the first to recognize Jesus as the Messiah a few chapters back, and maybe later we can talk about that a little more. But after the crucifixion, we get three results really quickly. We get the rending of the temple veil, which is very significant. Secondly, we have the centurion saying, surely this was a son of God. And then we get a note about the women's ministry, which is also very significant. But this moment with the centurion is extremely ironic. This centurion is probably not a passerby or a bystander, but probably involved in the crucifixion. He would have been regarded as the absolute last person who might be persuaded by the message of Jesus as a Messiah. And something I think modern audiences may have a hard time appreciating because we are used to 2,000 years of depicting in art and literature the crucifixion as this sad but also magnificent and glorious moment is that that does not resonate in the first century. In the first century, crucifixion is a humiliating death. Roman citizens cannot be crucified. There is some discussion over whether anyone should be. It is definitely regarded as cruel, unusual, humiliating, sort of beyond the pale punishment. It was done for maximum impact on the wayside. The crosses are not way, way high up in the air, as we often see them in art. They are low enough that people going by can taunt or harm those being crucified. It is meant to be a humiliating death. So the absolute last thing that a first century audience thinks is that this death would reveal to a centurion that Jesus was the son of God, and yet it happens. And I think this is one of the ways in which Mark is very, very powerful that may not be appreciated by modern audiences. I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that the consensus is that Mark was written by a Jew to Jewish audiences to show that Jesus was the Messiah. As a 21st century scholar, how do you frame the Gospel of Mark that was originally performance art, but now is written down in our Bibles to keep it relevant for 21st century audiences reading the text in light of these different expectations? So I don't know if that reflects the consensus. I would say the consensus at this point is that Mark was composed in performance, which means there is no one Mark. And let me kind of orally footnote that and be careful how I say it. At some point, someone wrote it down and that person may or may not have been named Mark. But before you get to that point, these stories have been told by people for whom the stories are important. And at the risk of a bit of a tangent, I suspect there almost has to be some of the storytellers who are women. I simply cannot imagine a male storyteller, particularly telling a male audience, a story that focuses on a woman's menstrual cycle that does not resonate. I don't know if I could even see that happening today. Certainly not in the first century where their taboos are even stronger than ours are. So the idea is that these stories are passed on and shared orally. There may be some organization and grouping of the stories before Mark. Probably the strongest candidate for that is what's called the Passion Narrative or the story of Jesus' suffering and death. There are other sections of Mark that may have adhered together before the whole gospel was presented as one. One candidate for that would be what is now Mark 2.1 through 3.6, 
which consists of five very similar stories that escalate. So those may have traveled in a group. Mark chapter four is all parables. It's easy to imagine the parables coming together. Mark five is a string of miracles. It's easy to imagine those coming together. Like I said previously, the part of Mark from chapters eight through 10, where they're on the way to Jerusalem and you have this pattern that you see three times of a passion prediction, a misunderstanding by the disciples and Jesus's corrective teaching. It's easy to imagine that being told as one story. In terms of the identities of the storytellers, we have no clue. At the time it's written down, there is some explanation that seems like it is included for perhaps a more Roman audience, but that gets a little speculative. It's hard to know whether something is included because the audience wouldn't have understood it or for emphasis. And if I can give an example, in Mark 14, we get a reference to Judas Iscariot, who's one of the 12. Well, that's not new information to the audience. They know he's one of the 12. It says so in chapter three. That information is for emphasis. The scene is Judas's betrayal and it's emphasis as if to say, can you believe one of the 12 did this? So it's not new information. And I think in the past, scholars have maybe looked at some information in Mark and said, aha, the audience would not have known this. Eh, I don't know. I think it's just as likely that it's meant for dramatic emphasis which again is easier to imagine in an oral context where a performer could play it up and emphasize it for the audience to show how incongruous or ironic or unexpected it was. So that is our picture. Short answer is we know incredibly little about the composition process of Mark. The ancient tradition is that Mark was Peter's interpreter and that these are Peter's stories. I think it is incredibly unlikely that that tradition is accurate. It comes from a very late date. Its source contains other ideas that are now widely disregarded. It also states that Mark includes everything from Peter. And I find it incredibly difficult to believe that Peter would have only had an hour and a half's worth of memories about Jesus. There are reasons to doubt that, although that was the older traditional view. I think it is unlikely, or at least I would say, I don't know that we have really any solid evidence of any particular link between Peter and Mark's gospel. What are some distinctive aspects of the Gospel of Mark compared to the other Gospels or current LDS thought? I can think of one. We don't have a baby Jesus or a childhood Jesus. He enters the scene as an adult. Sure. So Mark has neither nativity or resurrection appearance. The earliest texts of Mark ended after verse 8 which means it ends at the tomb with the women leaving the tomb and no resurrection appearance, which on the one hand, that strikes modern audiences as very odd, almost as if Mark were defective. I think though it's justifiable for two reasons. One is the focus on Mark is discipleship and babies are not disciples. So presenting Jesus as a baby does not further that goal of teaching about discipleship. On the other hand, the way Mark actually does start with John the Baptist does make sense, right, in the context of a focus on discipleship. So I think that works really, really well for Mark's purposes. And of course, it seems very odd to us not to have a resurrection appearance, but I think that's only by way of comparison with the other Gospels. One thing people tend not to notice is that the actual resurrection is never narrated in scripture, right? We never have a scene where we are in the tomb and we see Jesus, his spirit return to his body and him become alive again. That is not in any canonized account. Most of us never notice that and it doesn't strike us as weird because we've never had it. It's just not there. And I think by the same token, 
If you were used to Mark that ends with women in the tomb, it wouldn't seem like anything is lacking. It's only by way of comparison to the other gospels with their resurrection appearances that it seems sort of odd not to have one. But again, with Mark's focus on discipleship, we see the women authorized to be messengers of the resurrection, which is a big deal. We see the invitation extended to Peter and the other disciples who have fled, which is a big deal. And the young man in the tomb is also presented as a model disciple. And I also feel like the audience is energized to preach the word. I'd like to compare this ending of Mark, which again, the ending is the women left the tomb and that's where you end. And there's no appearance by Jesus. To me, it feels like when you are the last person on the row in the last row in Relief Society and the clipboard comes to you, if you don't sign up, no one's signing up. And I think that's how Mark's gospel ends, is if you don't take on the job of sharing the good news, it may not get done in a literary sense, not a literal sense. So I think it's exactly the right ending for Mark. It just strikes us as strange. You also mentioned that there were some stories about women in Mark that we might not find in the other gospels or treatment of women. Right. So there is a story of Jesus being anointed in all four gospels. Mark's version and Matthew's version are almost verbatim. Luke's and John's versions are really frustrating. And the reason I say they're really frustrating is they are similar enough to Mark's account that you look at these and think, this is the same story with a little bit of editorial license. They're also different enough from Mark's account that you look at these and say, this is not the same story, this has to be different. And so there's a little bit of frustration there if your question is, what happened in history and are these different accounts of the same event? And then are there two anointings? Are there three? So historically, I find it a little frustrating. On a literary level, though, Mark's story is an absolute masterpiece. So this is Mark 14, three through nine. And what we have is an unnamed woman entering the home of Simon the leper where Jesus is eating. This is the day before the Last Supper. And she anoints his head with perfume that costs about what an average laborer would earn during a year. And this story, I think, has many, many meanings. We are often distracted from the main meanings by the fact that a unnamed disciple raises an objection and says, this ointment should have been sold and the money given to the poor. And Jesus says, no, she's anointed my body for the burying. This story will be told in memory of me. So I think there are at least two levels that this anointing is functioning on. One is this is a burial anointing, but Jesus is not dead, so it's prophetic. So she understands that Jesus will suffer and die, which is very amazing because at this point, none of the 12 has shown any evidence of an ability to get their minds around this fact. They actually dispute with Jesus every time he mentions that he will suffer and die. That's what happens after each passion prediction. This is a big deal that this woman has this prophetic foreknowledge that he will suffer and die that no one else has at this point. And there's a lot of other burial imagery throughout the story. But this is also a royal anointing. The way that they coronate kings is to anoint their head. And the story here is imbued with royal imagery. So she understands him as Messiah. Messiah being the Hebrew word for anointed one, Christ being the Greek word for anointed one. This is the anointing. So this is an extremely significant story, and I don't see it as we need to pick between the meanings of a burial anointing or a royal anointing. I think the significance is that the one action is both. 
And the reason that is significant is Israel has had a lot of kings. Most of them were nothing to write home about. The fact that Jesus is a king may or may not be good, right? He may or may not be good. We don't necessarily laud all of Israel's kings. The fact that Jesus suffers and dies as a martyr, probably good, but doesn't make him unique, right? We have a lot of martyrs historically and biblically. The significance of Jesus, what it means for him to be the Messiah or Christ, is the unification of the suffering, death, martyrdom with these royal glorious aspects. That is where he is unique. And so this story really teaches in a way nothing else in Mark does what it means to be the Christ. So it's an incredibly, incredibly significant story that I think we overlook at our peril. You mentioned that we're not quite sure who wrote the book of Mark. Would a first century audience have been as concerned with who wrote the text as much as we are? Not at all. Not at all. Authorship functions very differently in the first century than it does today. I don't think they would have been at all concerned. I think concerns about authorship rise later when we want to know which texts are authoritative. So for example, an epistle written by Paul has more authority to most Christian communities than an epistle written by someone else, right? I think, though, this concern is misapplied when it comes to the Gospels. I don't think to be a Gospel author, you necessarily had to have any special authority to do so. Writing a Gospel is not performing an ordinance, right? I don't know you need authority for that. And so it doesn't concern me that the stories in Mark probably circulated through many nameless Christians who told those stories. I think what is significant about this picture is that the stories that were preserved were the ones that mattered to people. And so the stories are, in a sense, vetted not by the authority of the person telling them, but that this story made a difference. People wanted to tell this one because it taught them something about Jesus that they thought would be useful to other people. So I, I don't think that issue of authority needs necessarily to resonate for Latter-day Saints in terms of authorship of the Gospels. Could it be that we are so much into parsing and analyzing the words of the text so much and they were looking at the overall message and story being told. So to us, it very much matters exactly the words that Jesus was supposedly saying. So we want to know, what is the provenance for this? Was that person actually there? Could he have taken down those words, word for word? Well, I'm sure some modern readers are very concerned about those issues, but I think there are some assumptions there that when you look at them a little more closely become problematic. So in the first place, Jesus speaks Aramaic and our earliest texts are in Greek. So we don't have his exact words anyway. There are a handful of Aramaic words in Mark, but they're very scattered. We're talking maybe a half dozen phrases. So we cannot get to Jesus's original words in that sense anyway. And then the second issue is I don't think there's any serious case for any gospel being written within 40 years of when Jesus said something. And so the idea that it would have been remembered perfectly verbatim, even in Aramaic, perfectly verbatim, seems incredibly unlikely. And so if we think about our own family histories, events that happened 40 years ago in our family that have been shared orally, we don't come with an expectation of much at all being verbatim, right? And so I think there might be a similar dynamic going on. So I don't know that those are issues that modern audiences should be overly concerned about 
because in those senses, Jesus's exact words are somewhat inaccessible to us. I don't know that that's a huge barrier to reading or appreciating or benefiting from the New Testament, however. Those are important things to keep in mind as we're reading the New Testament. We've mentioned before that the disciples struggled Mm -hmm. in the book of Mark. Peter especially seems to have struggled. In fact, Mark has been criticized as being anti-Patrine. How do you feel about that accusation? So two thoughts. First, it is definitely true that Peter is presented as an extremely flawed person in Mark. We have a scene where Jesus calls him Satan, right? And we have a scene where even, well, actually, I think this is kind of funny. At the Last Supper, Jesus prophesies that Peter will deny him. And Jesus says, no, I won't, which I think the audience would have laughed at because what just happened, Peter just denied Jesus, right? So it's kind of funny. It's also deadly serious. And then, of course, Peter does literally deny Jesus during the trial scene. And then to an extent, the gospel ends with an open question that, yes, the women are supposed to go to Peter, announce the resurrection, invite Jesus to resume following in Galilee. But at the end of Mark, it is an open question whether Peter will do that. Now, the audience obviously brings in some knowledge of the development of Christianity, so they know Peter took that invitation up. On the one hand, Peter is presented as extremely flawed. On the other hand, I don't like the word anti here. And I think a helpful analogy might be this. Most Latter-day Saints are familiar with a story when Gordon B. Hinckley is a young missionary and he's frustrated and he writes a letter to his dad and his dad tells him to go to work. And we know how to interpret that story. That story is not about the president of the church. That story is about a young missionary. So when we come to read Mark, we are not reading about Peter, the president of the church. We are reading about a new convert right? A young, not necessarily chronologically young, but someone young in the faith serving as a missionary in Mark. And so I think if we remember that distinction, we don't need to be overly concerned or offended or disturbed that Peter is presented as making a lot of mistakes in Mark. And this goes back to, I think what I said earlier about the disciples, that these mistakes are presented largely for the benefit of the audience so that they will be encouraged in their own path of discipleship. It almost reminds me of the before and after photos you see for weight loss drugs. Peter and Mark is basically a before, but early Christians probably knew the after. And the whole point of those ads is to make you believe that you can undergo the same transformation, right? And so I think that is the before Peter in Mark's gospel is to help us realize that we too can stay on the path of discipleship and that if we mess up, even if we really mess up, it's not the end of the road. The only thing that's the end of the road is choosing not to follow Jesus, but the invitation is always there to resume our discipleship. So I think it is super important to realize this dynamic in Mark, but I don't find it disturbing at all or anti-Peter at all. We talked a little bit about the ending of Mark, which Mm -hmm. seems to be a major academic controversy, but not really. The consensus is it ended and then there was a substitute ending added hundreds of years later. Let's talk about that second ending, what it does what it was trying to do, and how it changes the ending. You mentioned the original ending was the perfect ending, and you gave some reasons. As I was reflecting on this, I thought it was wonderful because 
it kind of doesn't leave you with closure. Mm -hmm. And when something doesn't leave you with closure, a book or a movie, then it nags at you. Yeah. It stays on your mind and you wonder and you think about it. And what better way to leave a message? It leaves you with the idea of what are you going to do? Are you going to run away too, like the disciples? Mm -hmm. Or are you going Mm -hmm. to follow Christ? Tell us about that alternate ending. Sure. So there's actually a couple different ones known as the longer ending and the shorter ending. They seem to be written much later based on vocabulary concerns and ideas imported from other gospels and other early Christian texts. It seems like they were written because once you have Matthew, Luke, and perhaps other sources that have a resurrection appearance, then at that point, Mark seems unfinished. Now, I like what you said, and I agree with this idea that Mark seems to be unfinished. In that sense, these later endings to Mark are exactly what Mark was looking for, which was people to finish the story. I don't know, however, that the ending, the one we have in the King James Version and the other major ending called the shorter ending, really fit well, though, with what Mark is doing. They seem to reflect concerns and developments of Christianity that came later. So they are probably useful for us in learning about concerns of Christians at a later time. They are probably not useful for us in determining what happened during Jesus's immediately post-mortal ministry. Do you have any closing thoughts about the book of Mark? Something we might be missing if we just gloss over it in our typical manner of just reading verse to verse, chapter breaks. I'm reading a chapter today, a chapter tomorrow. Sure. So the main literary technique in Mark is called the Mark and Sandwich. And this means that Mark begins a story, breaks it off to tell another story, and then returns to the original story. So an example of this is in Mark chapter 5, when we are introduced to the fact that Jairus' daughter is sick. That story breaks off in the middle, and we get the story of the woman with the hemorrhage of blood. And then after that story is concluded, we resume the original story about Jairus' daughter, who is now deceased. If you read that and don't pay attention to the sandwich, I feel like you're missing about 90% of what the story is trying to do. There are numerous similarities between the woman with the hemorrhage of blood and Jairus's daughter. The text associates the number 12 with them in kind of an awkward way. They are both women with health problems. They are both described as daughters. One intercedes for herself. One has her father intercede for her. There's about a dozen similarities and then a handful of differences between the stories. And I think Mark is structured in such a way that we are very much intended to compare those stories. And so if we don't do that, we are missing out on an awful lot. And so that's why I think appreciating Mark as one entire text and ignoring chapter divisions, and in some cases, verse divisions, can be really important to trying to recreate the experience of the original audience and appreciating some of the things that I think would have been quite obvious to them, but are just lost to us when we divide the text the way we do it. Thank you, Julie. This has been a fascinating discussion. Over the last few years, you've had a book a year coming out. When can we look forward to reading your rendition and your commentary? Hopefully this winter, so perhaps early 2018. I'm not entirely sure of the date. Great. And who's the publisher on that? This is BYU Studies. Super. Thank you. And we look forward to visiting with you again. Thank you for having me. 
Be sure to check out LDSPerspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.